The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. This morning, I have the distinct pleasure to introduce to you a special guest speaker, Dr. Dondi Costin. Dr. Costin currently serves as the third president of Charleston Southern University one of our beloved Southern Baptist institutions of higher learning. The sum total of Dr. Costin's credentials are rare, and they are indicative of decades of hard work, dedication, service, faithfulness, and sacrifice. What you should be most interested in this morning about Dr. Costin and his dear wife, Vicki, who is with him this morning, is that they have spent a lifetime pointing others to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Costin's commitment to the gospel and his passion for developing the next generation of leadership, two things that are near to my own heart are noticeably evident in his life. Most recently, before arriving to Charleston, Dr. Costin, a major general, he served at the Pentagon as the Air Force Chief of Chaplains. He knows well, he knows well the twofold calling upon your lead pastor's life, Greg, to both shepherd this congregation and preach the gospel and serve the women and men of our armed, our nation's armed forces through his chaplaincy. Accordingly, Dr. Costin is well equipped to address our church this morning on the front end of Greg's deployment to Bahrain. So it is my pleasure to introduce you to Mr. Dr. Don D. Costin. Let's join in welcoming the visitors. What an appropriate pl- place, place for a resume. Right after the song, it talks about who is worthy. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Is there anyone? There is but one. The look you see on my face today is one of profound gratitude. Gratitude, first of all, for a church like this, who for the extent of its existence has glorified the Lord. A church like this who in a holy city has made sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that people understand first and foremost. That's what makes us holy. It's not the number of our steeples. Instead, it's the number of people who repent and fall on their face before a holy God to say, we are unworthy. In that context, just after that song was sung, Uh, The the responsorial song was sung about who is worthy, how appropriate it is that a resume would be read that in comparison is nothing but rubbish. We serve a risen Savior. The old song says, he's in the world today. And that's why we're here. The look on you see, the uh, the, the look on my face today is one of profound gratitude for you. It's also a profound gratitude because I represent today Charleston Southern University. And for as long as anybody can remember, this church or its predecessor churches have been involved in Charleston Southern. From before its very founding, this church was involved. And how wonderful it must be for those of you who can remember back in the day when Charleston Southern was nothing but an old rice farm. And those people who are in this church and in this community prayed and sought God and said, God, we think that you can do it. We think because you've done it before, we think that you can turn nothing 
into something. We think that one day if we pray and we're faithful and you will bless as only you can bless, we think that one day there'll be a, a city on a hill in way out North Charleston. We think that one day there'll be a university there founded upon the Great Commission. So much so that its official university seal has one verse emblazoned upon it. That verse is the Great Commission. We know that there are those who came before who thought and prayed and understood that if God does what uh, today, what he has always done before, that he would stand before us and he would put forth on that property, on University Boulevard, a place whose purpose is to, to be a platform for the propagation of the gospel. Who knew all those decades ago that two days after the 1995 graduation of Charleston Southern University, a young man named Greg Smith would, would uh, uh, graduate on Saturday and start to work here on Monday. And thanks be to God, you've not been fired yet. Who knew that although he would go on a nine-month deployment, that the interim lead pastor who would come up in his place for those nine months would also be a graduate of Charleston Southern University. God knew. That's why I'm so grateful for this church, because as we have, have just sung, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Don't you love the simplicity of the gospel? Don't you love the fact that all you have to know is John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would never perish but have everlasting life. This church in so many ways has been synonymous with Charleston Southern and still is. The Whitfield name, if nothing else, used to be and still is, but they are missionaries from this church. And for that, we are grateful. The look you see on my face today is one of gratitude because you as a church give so sacrificially to the cooperative program. And cooperative program giving uh, is siphoned off into a number of, of God-honoring places, uh, one of which is Charleston Southern. And the dollars that you give make sure that students who, who may not have any other opportunity to have the kind of education that we provide are able to come to a Christian school which is unapologetically Christian, which always has and will always stand for the gospel. And even though the society will become increasingly secularized, you can rest assured that your cooperative program dollars will go to a university like Charleston Southern, where we understand that every single student deserves a professor who loves the Lord Jesus, is involved in a church, and, and is growing in their faith, so that when they stand in front of that classroom, they can say that all truth is God's truth. And they do it class after class after class. Because like you as a church, we stand for the gospel. The look you see on my face today is one of profound gratitude for a church who will allow its pastor to be a chaplain. 
A church who understands that the Great Commission isn't just theoretical construct. Who understands that if, if we say that we as a church should be a sending body, then we ought to be willing to send our own pastor to places where people have never heard the gospel. In the providence of God, I have been to where he is going. I am an Air Force chaplain, now retired, but, but I was called a number of times to go to a Navy town, Bahrain, Navy country, Bahrain. I've been to that place, and what will happen to your pastor in very short order, he will land in what is a metropolitan city, and he will land at a modern airport, as we did. And he will look around and he will see the modern comforts of the 20, 21st century. He will see that the, the, the town that he lands in has a hard rock cafe. <laughs> at which I have eaten. And he will see that the, 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 the naval base in Bahrain, uh, the, the, the sailors just walk out of the gate and go into a modern town. And he will know that those who are deployed to that base get something like $150 a day in per diem. But they will put your pastor in a van. And your pastor will drive about 30 miles into the middle of nowhere. In a piece of desert which has a big fence around it. I know this because I've been there a number of times because what used to happen, because the Navy didn't have enough churches who would send pastors to go fill these spots, I, as the Air Force Chief of Chaplains, had to make sure that an Air Force Chaplain sat in the seat which should have been occupied by a Navy Chaplain. And so they will send him on the trip that I have taken a number of times out to the middle of the desert, surrounded by a fence where the people, including himself, uh, make $3.50 a day for incidentals which is being overpaid because there's nothing to buy <laughs> in this place and your pastor will be commissioned by you later in this service as a missionary to sailors and marines, some of whom have never been to church, ever. And this gospel-centered, Bible-believing pastor, a graduate of Charleston Southern University, will show up and he'll have his Bible in his hand and he will walk around and he will talk to people and he will find out who they are. And over the course of those nine months, he will have unlimited gospel conversations with young men and young women who, who need a touch from God. He will be the hands and feet and voice of grace on the Ashley. And so the look that you see on my face today is one of profound gratitude. 
Because the country asks you, will you loan us your pastor for a period of time? And you said yes. Thank you. Only God knows what he will do. Because this church and this family, Aiden, we talked earlier, brother, you are the man of the house. You've got plenty of help here. Thank you, Danielle, Aiden, for the sacrifices that you are about to make. I spoke to Greg earlier and I said to Greg, I said, brother, um, nine months is a long time. Ask any woman who's ever had a baby. Nine months is a long time, but at the end of it, you will, you will ask yourself, where did the time go? And you will leave that place so ready to go home, but so unready to leave. That's the calling that you have as a family. You, you will now know what all the other families that you pray for and serve understand, what it's like to, to, to have your, your, your sailor go off to serve other people. You will understand now what that's like, and you will now be a, a better chaplain's wife and a better chaplain's son because you have incarnated yourselves as people who have sent others away. Greg... It will be transformational for you because you will understand that all those sailors, all the counseling that you've done, all the stories that you've heard, you will understand in ways that that you could never have known before that Jesus did that for you. Jesus left heaven. Grace in the heavens he left. You leave grace on the Ashley and you go incarnate yourself like Jesus did. You will be transformed. You will be transformed. And I dare say that you will be transformed. Because when Greg comes back, he will have story after story after story of how God used your faithfulness to change the lives of young men and women for eternity. Thank you. The message today is how to pray for your pastor. Because there's nothing else that I'm going to ask of you more than that. I'm going to ask you for the next nine months to pray for your pastor. I'm going to ask you to pray for your pastor's wife and your pastor's son. Because they are going to need it like they've never needed it before. If you will, turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. I see in Exodus chapter 17 an analogy of sorts. I see an analogy of prayer. And I'm going to read a few verses here, and then I'm going to get to the text. And the text is uh, verses 8 through 16 in, in chapter 17 of Exodus. And... To set up the story, it's one that you all know very well. The story is this. God saw that his people were in a world of hurt. 
God saw for about 400 years that the people of God, the Israelites, we call them today, uh, were stuck in a rut. They were being oppressed by the Egyptians and they felt abandoned by God uh, so much so that God began to bless them anyway so that the, the Egyptians would see that there is a God and the gods, little G gods that they were worshiping were no match for the big G God that we serve. And so Moses, as you know the story, was minding his own business, working for his father-in-law out in the middle of nowhere, which will be very familiar for you very soon, Brother Greg. And God comes to him uh, through, the, th th through the means of a burning bush. Now, I love the story of the burning bush because it says to me how, how, how discontented I am with knowing God. And here Moses is minding his own business and he's attracted by this burning bush. And, and the burning bush calls him. Hey, Moses, come on over here. I want to have a word with you. So Moses goes and, and has a, a right nice conversation with a burning bush. And as he approaches the burning bush, uh, God from the burning bush says to him, take your shoes off. This place is holy ground. And in the burning bush, God through the burning bush says to Moses, Hey, Moses, I have heard your people groaning. I have heard them whining and moaning. And I have decided to rescue them. At which point in my mind, this isn't in the text, but in my mind, this is what happens. Moses says to the burning bush, well, it's about time. I am so happy that you have seen the light, God, because you know, I know, they all know, they've been crying for generations now. They know that you just need to rescue them. So do what you do, God. Snap your finger. Uh, do what you do and rescue the people. Now, in the meantime, I'm going to go back to taking care of my father-in-law's business. And then God says what God often says. This is my paraphrase. Let me finish, Moses. Because when I said I was going to rescue them, what I meant to say was I was going to send you on my behalf to rescue them. And that's when Moses says, hold on just a second. Now get the picture. Here Moses is arguing with a burning bush. He's standing there having a conversation, which for him, it's obvious that it's God. And he's having a conversation and he's saying to God, if you look in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, he says to God, I'm not your person. I'm not your guy. Um, you really need to send somebody else. And God keeps saying to him, no, no, you're the person I've chosen and, and I'm going to help you. Every excuse Moses gave, God came back with, don't worry, I'll work around that. Every weakness that, that Moses brought forth, he says, don't sweat it, Moses. I'm going to take care of this. What part of I'm God and you're not, you not understand here. And so Moses finally said, As some of us have said. I'm just not going to do it. 
I'm just not going. God, what part of that don't you understand? I'm just not going to do it. God says as only God can. Oh, you're going to do it. But I'm going to be with you. And so we see that he he takes the the staff of God in his hand. and, and, And God says to Moses, I will be with you and I will show you every step along the way. And he takes the staff of God. We can look at this in Exodus 3 and 4. And he takes the staff of God. And Moses says, "How God, how are they going to know? And he says, take the staff, throw it on the ground. It turns into a snake, pick it back up, it's a staff. This staff of God is representative of my power in your life. It's not your power. Moses, it's mine. And as long as you stay, I love the word that the song, the, 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 the beautiful voiced piano player sang earlier, tethered to, what, what a phenomenal word. As long as you stay tethered to the power of God, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so 10 plagues happen. Not one, not a fluke, not two, you know, not an accident. Ten plagues happen. And after ten plagues, God comes through every single time. And God says, hey, if that doesn't prove it, I don't know what will, but I got one more for you. I'm going to take you through uh, uh, the Red Sea. And I'm going to take you over on dry land. And when we get to the other side, when you are in absolute safety, and we're going to get to the other side, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to drown your enemies, and you're going to look back. And it's a scene you'll never forget. You ever wonder how powerful God is? Just remember what he just did for you. Three days later, they're grumbling about wanting to go back. You say to yourself like I say to myself. Sounds about right. Because it usually takes me about three days to forget how phenomenal God is. In Exodus chapter 17, we we see uh, based on the first few verses of Exodus 16 that this is about six weeks after they have just seen the, the, the miracle of all time. Before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see that about six weeks in. They're griping about food. They're griping about being tired. And they sit down and they want to go back from whence they came. And so in Exodus chapter 17 we see this again. Look at verse 2 of Exodus 17. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. Sounds about right. Look at verse 7. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not the first principle I see here in this passage is this how to pray for your pastor first principle is this remember that we are a forgetful people 
Remember that we're always saying to ourselves, regardless of the facade that we may put on our faces in Sunday school or in our city group, we're always saying to ourselves in one way or another, is the Lord among us or not? What kind of a question is that six weeks after God has done all that he's just done? Well, it's the same question that you and I have to answer all the time because we ask it. Now, now, now I have never seen a burning bush. I have never had a conversation with a burning bush. I was not there when the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected. I did not see the stone be rolled away. But I have read about all of these things over and over and over again. And I am of the tribe that says, if the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. So it's not that I don't know that it happened. It's not that, that, that I don't understand that it's true. It's that I simply choose not to believe it sometimes. Because it seems to me that my situation, maybe yours too, seems too overwhelming for even God to take care of. And that's when the Lord says to us, well, you, you don't fully understand the God that we serve. The first thing here is they ask, is the Lord among us or not? Sure, he's among us. He's always among us. He's never left us and he never will. But we remember, first of all, when you're thinking about how to pray for your pastor... Remember that we're forgetful people. The second principle that I see in the next passage here is this. We should pray as our first priority. Let me read a few verses here. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage, 8 through 16. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses, he's the general, said to Joshua, and Joshua's the colonel. Now, Greg... I'm going to have to translate this for you. Moses is the admiral. Joshua's the captain. Okay, we got it. Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. The picture here is he has the staff of God in his hand. The same staff that God used to work all those other miracles he has now in his hand. When Moses' hands grew tired, verse 12, they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now, I love this passage for a whole bunch of reasons. Mostly because when I see it, I see in here my tendencies to be a forgetful people. 
The context here is that, that, that Moses and Joshua and others had no idea how to be fighters. They didn't have the kind of training that Brother Greg has had. And some of you have had. All they knew how to do was make bricks. And do what their slave drivers told them to do. That's all they knew how to do. And so now they come in on this journey to the promised land, which they thought was going to be a short one. But because of their disobedience, it turned to be a whole lot longer than they imagined. And so they, they come across one of the first enemies that they get to face here. And these are the Amalekites. And God says here in this passage that they will defeat the Amalekites. Now the Amalekites were the bad dudes of the day. If you were to go to, to Deuteronomy chapter 5, you would see that what the Amalekites did is they sort of hung back uh, on the margins. And they hung back on the margins until the Israelites had harvested their crops. And when the crops were harvested, then the Amalekites would come out and steal what they had done. These are the, the kind of enemy that they're facing. And the Amalekites were themselves hardened soldiers. The Amalekites, the Bible says here, would be defeated. But what we know is from Scripture that they wouldn't be defeated until the time of David. And so about 500 years would elapse from the time that, that God says here that he would blot out the memory of Amalek in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It would be 500 years before that happened. Have you ever wondered yourself why God seems so slow in answering the prayers that you pray and fulfilling the promises that you think he made? It's a wonderful thing to recall that we are a forgetful people. It's a wonderful thing to recall that God is God and we are not. It's a wonderful thing to recall that when God says he's sovereign, he means it. And so what does Moses do knowing all of this? Moses makes prayer his first priority. I love the fact that here Moses is the general. And Moses is walking the colonel Joshua out to the battlefield. Uh, and in my mind's eye, um, uh, Joshua heads to the right and Moses turns to the left. And in my mind's eye, Joshua says to Moses, dude, where are you going? We, we got a battle to fight. And Moses says, well, yes, we do. And my role in this battle is to go to the top of the hill and do the most strategic thing I can do as a military leader. And that is to pray for victory. And so Moses goes to the top of the hill. And again, in my mind's eye, the conversation that they have is um, Aaron and her. He says to them, he says, you go and fight. Now, this may not have happened this way. It just is what happens in my mind. Uh, Aaron and her start to go to start to go that way. And I don't know if it was Moses's idea or if it was their idea. But somebody said, hey, um, I think he's going to need some help. My guess is it was Aaron and her uh, who's after a few steps away with Joshua said, you know, you know, Josh, I actually think that this is going to be harder than Moses believes. I actually think that he's probably going to get physically tired, emotionally tired, relationally tired. He's going to get discouraged. He's going to feel defeated. Um, and who's going to be up there with him? And so my guess is that Joshua said to Aaron and her, you're probably right. 
Why don't you go with him? My hunch is that he's going to need you more than I am. And so Moses says, prayer is my first priority. The question is, is it yours? Is prayer your first priority? The the, the Bible says that we are to pray without ceasing. The Bible says that prayer is what changes us. The Bible says that that is how we commune with God. And I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, I don't understand completely why God has us to pray. If God is omniscient, if God is omnipotent, why does he need me to come alongside and pray? Why does God treat me as a partner and not a pawn? I don't understand that. All I know is that's the way it is. And so Moses understands that he's never going to be be able to do anything here unless God is running the show. And so his first priority is to go to the top of the hill with Aaron and her. Now, I imagine that at first Moses is up there uh, and, and notice in the Bible here that he's praying with fervent passion. Look at verses 10 and 11 here. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Don't you wish that your prayer life and its effects were as obvious and as immediate as that? Don't you wish that you could think, okay, things are starting to go bad. I I, I must not be praying like I should. I think I should go back to my prayer closet. And then the minute that you got back to your prayer closet, everything was roses again. Don't you wish that that's the way life worked? Well, I don't know about your life, but it doesn't work that way in my life at all. My life is more like the 500 years it takes between the time God promises the Amalekites are going to be killed, uh, uh, wiped away, and and the time that they're blotted out of the memory. That's more my experience. But because God, I think, was teaching them a very valuable lesson that they were going to need over and over and over again, the minute that he lowered his hands, the Amalekites started winning. But as long as he held his hands up, I love the fact, too, that Moses realized probably after about an hour and a half, I don't know, we could probably do this if we wanted to, but some of y'all probably do these at the gym. I, I do them just not without any weights. These biceps, you get what you get. Nothing. These deltoids don't have any. But just imagine that you're holding up this staff, and at first, you're thinking, I got this. And I I imagine Moses saying uh, to himself, not out loud, hey, man, I I just whipped up on Pharaoh. Look at me. I I am somebody. I am the, I'm in charge of this whole bunch of people. Yeah, they grumble sometimes. They whine and moan. Yeah, I had to get them bread and water and, and a few quail along the way. But, but I'm the man. And Moses holding that thing up. Uh, and then Aaron and Hurry probably come up to him. Hey, need some help? Moses probably said, I don't need your help. I'm good. Don't you know who I am? And Aaron and Hur probably said to themselves, we'll see. After a while, it, it's, it's obvious that Moses' hands start to, to start to get tired, as yours would. And as soon as his hands start to go down, he's praying with fervent passion, but he can't do it by himself. Aaron and her come along. So the third principle I see here is to pray with faithful partners. 
We're a forgetful people. Prayer must be our first priority. We should pray with fervent passion. I guess it's the fourth principle. So the fourth principle is that we should also pray with faithful partners. And these faithful partners are Aaron and her, and they come alongside. Notice also that the leader, the, the leader that we think about, uh, uh, you know, Abraham and Moses and David, if you think about the whole Old Testament, they're like, these are like the big three dudes, man. Abraham, Moses, and David, they're, they're, the, they're the heat. And Moses gets tired. Greg Smith will get tired. Greg Smith will be up at all hours of the night. Because the thing that we learn in our business, Greg, is that people don't have problems at convenient times. <laughs> they have problems when you need to be sleeping. They have problems when you're exhausted from talking to these other hundreds of sailors who are going to need your help. But it's that one person who's going to come and they're going to say to you when you are tired and exhausted and hungry and when you want to go home, they're going to say to you, hey, chaplain, do you have a minute? And if you are praying for your pastor at that moment, he's going to be able to say, Sure. Come on in, let's chat. And in that moment, because of your prayers, because you are there as a congregation, uh, in very real ways, helping him to hold up the staff of God, even though he may be seated on that stone, you're going to be there holding up that staff uh, on his behalf so that he can do the ministry that God's called him to do. And I would argue that that is far more important than nearly anything else you've got going. How to pray for your pastor. You remember you're a forgetful people. You remember that prayer must be your first priority and that you have to pray with fervent passion. That means that I don't know how you're going to do this, interim lead pastor, all right, but somebody needs to be praying for this brother all times of day and night in some way. However old you are, uh, James, 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 on the way from your car to, to your school, uh, as you're driving, uh, going from that bus, all right, into the schoolhouse, you say a prayer for your pastor, okay? Got it? Everybody who's about James's height or just a little bit taller, a little bit shorter, you do the same thing. And all you have to say is, God, be with Brother Greg today. What if everybody did that? What if every meal that you got together from now until the time he returns, he returns, you make sure that Greg, Danielle, and Aiden are on your prayer list. Even if you don't have one yet, make sure you start with those three names. And you pray, God, as fervently as we can pray these prayers, be with Brother Greg. Be with Danielle, be with Aiden, because I know they're going to get worn out, tired, and lonely. But we know that you have called them to this, this, and so God bless them so he can be a blessing to others, because that is what is going to happen. Trust me, I have been to the place he's going. It can be a lonely place. It can be a tiring place. It can be a boring place. It can be a tempting place. And you need to understand, Greg, that your calling is from God. And the, you've been, you're being commissioned today to go and serve these sailors. So don't, don't you love what, what he does last in this passage? Verse 15. 
Let's do verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, comma, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, period. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands are lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. How can those two things be reconciled? In verse 14, what Moses wants written on the scroll is that God will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. But at the, just the end of the next, very next verse, it says they're going to be fighting for, for generations. How can those things be reconciled? Because God is sovereign. I love the fact that God says to them, you are going to win, but it's going to take a while. You're going to have to trust me for generations, brothers and sisters, but I promise you that it is going to happen. Maybe not in your lifetime, but if you write it on a scroll and you do it in such a way that Joshua will remember it. Why Joshua? Well, because Joshua has been fighting the whole time. And Joshua probably feels defeated. And Joshua probably thinks that as he comes off the battlefield, he probably thinks like South Carolina did against Georgia yesterday. He probably says to himself, I don't know how we got away with that one. I hope we don't have to play them again. And God says to Joshua, in writing, I will overcome everything in your life, but you have to trust me. You have to understand that I am God and you are not. You have to understand that this is not going to happen immediately. Whatever your problem may be, whatever your challenge may be, whatever the thing in your life has happened that's been a disappointment and discouragement to you, um, it is going to come out in the end, if you follow Christ, that you will win. But it may not be in exactly the same way or exactly the same timing that you wish or that you hope or even that you pray. I love the Bible because the Bible doesn't mince words. The Bible never tries to explain to us or try to convince us that if you just come to Christ, everything's going to be awesome all the time. The Bible says, no, it's going to be stinky sometimes. It's going to be hard sometimes, but I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just trust me and in the end you will win. Wasn't that the point of the responsorial song that was sung? Well, wasn't that from the book of Revelation saying, hey, oh, by the way, the world seems in chaos. Is there any single person who can rescue us? And Jesus Christ says, I think I'm the guy you're looking for. This is the beauty of the gospel. So unlike many generals after winning a battle, most of us, if we're honest, would come down off the hill and say to the troops, I told you I was the man. 
I mean, I'm, I'm a general, man. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm amazing. Everybody should know this. And uh, I, you should give me a medal. And maybe a streamer on our, our God, on our flag. That's not what he does. He does what any real leader should do. He gives credit where credit is due. They pray with focused purpose. Uh, And he sets up an altar. And some scholars have surmised that the altar that they set up was the very stone that he was sitting upon. And the, the message here is, lest any of you think that it was my generalship that caused us to win, don't even go there. Um, here is the altar. This is how God supported me. He gave me some, a, a, a firm foundation, his altar, upon which to sit. And he gave me faithful partners to hold up my hands. I had nothing to do this with this other than making sure that my first priority was prayer. And so he builds an altar and he says... The Lord is my banner. Those of you in the military understand what a guidon does. You'll notice there's a, quite a height differential between Greg and I. In formation, Greg is always at the front. I'm always at the back. Way back here. This is where they put the short people. Because they size from tall to short. And I've always wanted to be tall. Because way back here, you can't always see what you need to see. Way back here, you can't always hear what you need to hear when the commands are given for the formation to turn left or turn right. But thanks be to God, they have a guide on and that flag goes up. And when I see the flag go up, even though I'm way back here, I know what to do. Even if I'm not in on what's happening up front. It's the beauty of the last verse here. The Lord is my banner. Those of you who have ever served or have uh, pledged allegiance to in a, in a school setting. Uh, and they, they, they are, are, are seeing the Olympics and when they give out those medals um, and, and they play that song, and even though you've not run a single lap ever in your life, um, when, when, something about when that person who's run all those laps and won that gold medal stands there with their hand on their heart and they raise that flag playing that star-spangled banner song, you just sort of get a lump in your throat and a tear in your eye because you know what that banner stands for. Beautiful thing in this passage. The Lord is our banner. And any victory we are ever going to have from this point forward is never going to be because you are strong enough or smart enough or good enough to get it done. It's only going to be because of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. My urging today is that during these nine months you would pray for your pastor in remembering that you're a forgetful people 
which means I want you to pray just as hard next week that you'll pray the third week of January or the first week of April because only God knows when he is going to need it the most. Forgetful people, make prayer your first priority. Pray with fervent passion and faithful partners. Make prayer your focused purpose so that at the end of the day, you give credit where credit is due. And the credit will never be to you, will never be to you. It'll be to give glory and honor and praise to the only one who was worthy. Amen.